Good morning, I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and we welcome you to our Sunday morning Bible class on a beautiful Sunday morning uh, here in St. Louis. We welcome you if you're in the St. Louis area listening on KFUO 850 AM. Uh, those also listening perhaps online, we welcome you at KFUO.org. And certainly, we welcome all those who are with us here in person. Uh, if you're here in person, there are Bibles on a cart near the back there. And we're going to be finishing up Luke 12 and charging headlong into Luke 13 today. So that's where we are at, the very last verses of Luke 12, and then into Luke 13. So before that, however, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings to us, but especially today as we were reminded in your word for your Son who came not to serve himself, but to serve us and all people. How he humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And we know that it is through him that we have forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. And we thank you for the privilege and the joy of sharing that good news with all whom we encounter. We thank you also for this opportunity to study your word together. We pray your Holy Spirit's blessing upon the study of that word. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last Sunday, uh, you got all the way up uh, to verse 53. We'll start with verse 54 of Luke 12, the very ending of that chapter. And uh, just to put everything in the bigger context once again, Remember that Luke 9, verse 51 is what we might call the hinge verse in the Gospel of Luke. It's in Luke 9, 51, where it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And obviously not just to go to Jerusalem, but to go to Jerusalem and do what he came to do, to offer his life as payment in full for the sin of the world. And so from Luke 9, 51 until Luke 19.27, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, we have what's called this travel narrative, or uh, travel section in Luke, and a lot of the material that is here is uh, unique to Luke, uh, and so we're very grateful for that material. It just so happens that we're either just in front or just trailing the gospel lessons uh, that we have every Sunday right now, because we're in the Gospel of Luke, uh, today we're going to just miss uh, coming up against that uh, gospel lesson. Uh, so at any rate, it's kind of nice we hear it here and have it reinforced uh, in church on Sunday. Then chapter 12 is broken down. There are two major sections. Verses 1 through 53, which you finished last week, is Jesus talking primarily with his disciples. We know that there's a huge crowd. In fact, in earlier we, we saw how there were multitudes that were following him, thousands that were following him, so many that they were trampling one another. But in verses 1 through 53, Jesus is speaking primarily to his disciples, sort of the, the nearer in that huge group of people. And there's one exception. There's a somebody in the crowd that calls out for him to settle dispute uh, in, in his inheritance. But other than that, the whole section is just with the disciples. Now, starting in verse 54 and going up to 13, verse 21, we have Jesus addressing the crowds, addressing that larger group of people. Okay? And so we're starting with that here today. He's going to now uh, not only be addressing the disciples, but addressing 
the larger crowd as well. So let's read, I'll read first of all verses, let's just read 54 through 56, and then we'll go back and talk about that. He said, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? All right, so let's go back and talk about this. As Again, verse 54 you see there, he turns to the crowds. So now he's turning away primarily from the disciples and talking to the crowds, right? And so you see the basic here, he's saying, you know how to interpret earthly things. You know how to look at something and know what's going to happen and act accordingly. Okay? And he gives two examples for this. He says, when you see the clouds rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. We do the same thing, right? We look to the primarily southwest here in the St. Louis area, although northwest can come down as well. We see storm clouds coming, right? Better, better uh, put that umbrella down on the deck, better, you know, prepare, it's going to probably be a storm here, right? Or we watch, the, we watch the radar on our phone, or we watch the radar on television and see the front coming in, and we, we say, okay, there's going to be a storm here. We better act accordingly, okay? Or he says the same thing, uh, the south wind blowing, and there will be a scorching heat. And we know what that's like here in St. Louis as well, right? When those winds turn to the south, we get heat, but we also get humidity. And we know what's coming, right? We better dress accordingly. Not a good day to be wearing a, you know, a, a suit coat uh, around, probably. But then he makes the jump. You see what's happening around you, and you can't, you can't interpret it. You can't realize what's happening. And let's remember, Jesus has been right in front of them, performing sign after sign after sign, and they're not getting it. Remember in earlier, a couple of weeks ago, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by whose authority? Satan's authority, right? And, and uh, so, you know, he's saying, you know how to look around the world, you know how to look around your environment, and make conclusions and act accordingly, yet when it comes to, as he says here, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And it's what's happening in the present time. The kingdom of God has come upon them in the person of Jesus, and they do not know how to interpret it. Instead, they're planning or trying to devise every other possible explanation for what they're seeing with their very eyes. Some are even asking for more signs. Well, he could do signs morning, noon, and night. And some of them are just not going to believe. Okay? So he's saying, you, you can do this day in and day out and you do it, but yet you don't know how to interpret what's happening right in front of you. Okay? There's what you see, and there's what you do as a result. Now, let's talk bigger picture. Uh, how do the times today, how would we interpret the times today? We as Christians, 
living in this world, we see what, go, what are some things we see going on around us that should cause us to maybe stand up and take note or look around and take note. Anything you can think of? Lois? Destruction with flooding, uh, fires. Exactly. Exactly. Steve, did you have? Okay. Uh, you were saying abortion? Okay. All right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What is right is suddenly wrong or out of step. And what is wrong is suddenly that's, that's the mainstream, right? Okay. Any other things? Persecution of Christians. Yep. Yep. And let's take a look. Uh, if you want to keep your finger here in Luke or on your phone, bookmark, whatever you need to do. Uh, take a look at Matthew chapter 24. Verses 6 through 13. And this is Matthew 24 and 25 is where Jesus talks a lot about the end times, about the times when he will return. Matthew 24, and we want to look at verses, we'll just look at 6 through 13. We could read the whole two chapters, but 6 through 13, Matthew 24. Okay? So starting at verse 6, Matthew 24. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So you see there, Jesus cites um, signs, we might say. A sign is something we see and points us to something else usually, right? So he cites signs in the creation. We talked about some of those before, right, that, that came up. Um, and then he cites signs amongst the world that kingdom will rise up against kingdom, nation against nation. He cites signs that occur even... Um, concerning themselves, that they will be put to death, that they will be hated on account of him, and people's love will grow cold, lawlessness will, um, will flourish, okay? So let me ask you this, uh, when, when do we see that happening? Okay, you're saying right now. Now is this the first, is today the first day that we've seen these things happen? No. In fact, for the disciples, close up and personal, they are going to be put to death, except for John, the only one that we believe by tradition outside of the scriptures did not die as a result, direct result of his faith. Um, and so what's the point here? We as Christians, should we be looking at a precise time and say, well, I think it's going to be um, August 30, 
of 2022? No. The point here is these things have happened from the time of Jesus, and they continue today, don't they? So what's the point for us as Christians? What's our posture to be? Be ready. Right. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says. Be ready when the master of the house returns. Right? For he will come at an hour, what? That you do not expect him to come. Okay? And so what he's saying to them basically is, you know, look around. You can look around at different signs that are around you and, do, and respond accordingly, but you're missing what's happening right in front of you. You're not interpreting what's happening right in front of you. Now, those are signs on a macro scale, I would call it, that we look for the end, uh, or signs of the end, I should say. I think there are also, aren't there, some signs, what we might call a micro scale, in people's lives. Uh, I'm thinking of, for example, when a friend or a loved one dies. What comes to our mind? There's going to be a day, unless Christ returns first, right? There's going to be a day when I will die as well. In Christ, we don't fear that. In fact, we some really look forward to that, don't we? That our soul will be with the Lord. We will be out of this veil of tears here on this earth. And so there are both what, I, what I've called macro signs that Jesus has given us and others have given us in the scriptures uh, for the end, but also in our lives. God gives us those signs as well, doesn't he? And it's a, all with the intent that we are, quote-unquote again, ready when Christ returns. Now, how do we, I'm asking this sort of in a tricky way, how do we get ready for the return of Christ? Let me ask you this. Do we get ourselves ready for the return of Christ? Who, who gets us ready? Yeah. It's not up to us, is it? We stay in his means of grace, his word and his sacrament. Really, when you think about it, from the day of our baptism on, we have been, he has prepared us, is a better way of putting it, isn't it? He has prepared us. And so we stay in that word and in that sacrament, looking forward to that day when he will return. Because we have the scriptures and we have what's going on around us on a day-to-day -day basis. And it gets, he continues to keep us ready for that day. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Any comments, Bud? Well, the, it says interpret. You're not able to interpret. Mm -hmm. Discern is another symbol. Yes. Or recognize. So the idea of recognizing Jesus and who he is, is is the whole issue. Yes. And it's the, the same thing today. Do, do we and do people recognize Jesus for who he is? Right. So the comment was, again, that the, the idea of interpreting is, uh, is a discerning the times and who Jesus really is. And that's the same today, isn't it? Many people will acknowledge that A, Jesus existed as an historical figure, you know, and a great teacher, great example of love, great moral example, but not their Savior. I yeah. also want to point out, uh, and then we'll see if there are any other questions, that 
In Greek, there are different words for time. There's the, just the word for general time called chronos. From that, we get chronology, just a passing of time. The word that's used here is the Greek word kairos, which is a, an opportune time, a, um, a critical time. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't know how to interpret the opportune, critical time right here and now. In other words, with him standing right in front of you. Okay? There's, there's a kairos when a big storm is coming, right? <laughs> better, better take heed. But in a much, in, a, in the opposite way, really positive way, there is a kairos right now with Jesus standing right in front of them. Okay? All right. Any other comments or questions before we move on? All right, let's do so. Uh, verses 57 through 59, and Jesus says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. All right, so going through this, the, he's, he's saying here, settle with your accuser. We think he's talking here about a debt and owing a debt and going to a debt jail, a debtor's jail, it was called. Uh, settle with him on the way lest he, the accuser, drag you before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the constable or bailiff, uh, and you be thrown into jailer's prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So, is Jesus merely giving a lesson on economics here as he goes to the cross? In other words, is this economics 101 as you are Christians? Uh, just don't have debt and make sure you settle with the per people you owe money to uh, so you don't go to court. Is that, is that all he's doing here? Is that, is that uh, uh, no. I think we're pretty assured that's not the case. Try this interpretation. The debt is the debt of sin. You are the debtor, right? And ironically, who is your accuser, especially for the crowds that he's talking to there? Okay, the same guy's paying the debt. No, I mean, who's accusing the guy? All right. Satan is the, we normally think of Satan as the accuser. Try it this way. Jesus as the accuser, calling upon them to repent and produce the fruits of righteousness as he travels. Notice that phrase, on the way. On the way to where? The cross, right? And who's the judge? Judgment seat of God that we stand before. Now, ironically, if he's the accuser, what else does he end up doing for them if they, if they believe? Yeah, well, yeah, he's sort of the defense attorney, but he also pays the debt, doesn't he? He also pays the debt. And so John the Baptist shows up, 
And he's preaching a baptism of repentance. Repent and produce the fruits of repentance. There's another place where this sort of phrase, phraseology is used by Jesus. And it's in Matthew 18. And it's dealing with the unforgiving servant. Remember that parable where this guy owed a huge amount, a so huge, un, uh, really unpayable to a master. Master forgives the debt. The guy who's forgiven goes out, finds somebody who owes him a, a minuscule, by comparison, minuscule amount, and refuses to forgive, right? And so we won't turn there, uh, but I'll just read Matthew 18, starting with verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And here comes the verse. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Jesus used that same image of being thrown into what at that time was called a debtor's prison. And the debtor's prisons at that time is where you were put if you could not come up with the means and it was, you went on trial and it was determined it was just that you owed whatever the amount was. And if you could not come up with it, and many times I read that family members were almost expected to help out to keep you out of debtor's prison. And, but in those times, if you didn't come up with it or your family didn't come up with it or maybe didn't want to come up with it, uh, you were put into debtor's prison. And, you know, we're so accustomed today to having the rights and privileges of, um, of people, even if you are incarcerated, Back at that time, they would torture those who were in debtor's prison, and it was thought that would be an incentive to get the family members to kick in the money and settle the debt and get them out of debtor's prison. So we don't, uh, back at that time, it would, it would ring to them as to what he's talking about. You'll go in there until you pay the last penny. And again, if you, it, it seems to make sense if you think of Jesus as the one same one who's calling them hypocrites, the same one who's calling upon them to repent and produce fruits of righteousness is the one who is accusing them. He's also going to be the one who's going to end up paying the debt, ironically, <laughs> on the cross, paying their debt. Whether they, whether they uh, receive it or not, he's going to end up paying their debt. So he's calling upon them to repent while he's on the way. And... Uh, lest they be uh, put before the judge and then put again into this prison. Now, is Jesus talking here about a literal prison? No. Debtor's prison became an image, an image, uh, an image used for hell. And again, it was a very apt one, right? The guy who was the unforgiving servant had such a big debt, he would never be able to pay it off. Kind of like us, isn't it? Our debt is so great when it comes to sin, I'm not talking about cash here, but I'm talking about sin, that we could never, ever pay it off. Okay? So, again, uh, this became an image. So it's another very pointed way that he is appealing to them to repent. Look at what's right in front of you. Repent and produce the fruits that 
befit uh, uh, righteousness. Okay? Let me stop there. Uh, comments, questions? Yes, Ruth. Oh, yeah, okay, that's a good point. Yeah. So Ruth's point is that he's, he's saying settle on the way. There's a sense of urgency there. Yeah, don't wait. Before you get in front of the judge, that's a very good point, yeah. And he happens to be on the way, doesn't he? And so, yeah, that's an excellent point. Don't wait until, you know, you're standing in front of the judge to hope for some kind of a, a settlement. Yeah, good point. Any others? All right, let's go on. Here we go, chapter 13. And uh, again, continuing with the crowds. Let's uh, take, let's see. We'll go through... Verse 5, I guess, and then we can go back. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than the all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. All right, so Jesus continues on his way, and somebody in the crowd some at that time, so there were some there, who told him, now there were, this is apparently an event, well, not apparently, it is an event that occurred. We don't have it recorded in scripture. But apparently there was a time when some Jews from Galilee, which is up north, came down and were making a sacrifice at the temple. And we don't know again the details, but Pilate had some sort of an attack and massacre take place there so that the blood of these Galilean Jews was mixed with the sacrifice of the blood from the animals that were being sacrificed, okay? And apparently this was a well-known event that occurred. And so the people are asking Jesus, hey, what do you think about these Galilean Jews whose blood Pilate mingled with the sacrificial offering are they, in, in their words, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Okay. Uh, and then notice Jesus launches into another event without anybody asking him about it. And again, we don't know, we don't have a description of this. It's not in, you know, we can't read about the exact blow-by-blow -blow details. But notice there... He, there, there apparently was a tower. Uh, notice there were 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? So Jesus goes into that without even being asked. And apparently, again, this must have been a well-known event because notice Jesus refers to them as those 18 who were killed, right? And so it's assumed everybody knows who he's talking about. So again, two events that occurred here. And the point is, let's talk about this now. 
When someone has a tragedy occur in their life, a car accident, uh, anything you want to say, is that happening to them because they are a worse sinner than the person who doesn't have the car accident or is, uh, is not involved in any way? Is that what we conclude? Well, you had that accident because you missed church last Sunday, or you had that accident because you cheated your employees last week. Is that what we would say? No. But isn't that the way we're tempted to think, right? When something happens, we're tempted to think back, oh, oh this is God getting me back for whatever it was, right? And we want to make this one-to-one -one correspondence between some sin we committed and what's occurring in our life. And let's just ask the question, does God punish you today because of your sin? A lot of head shaking, no. Why not? Because it's paid for, yeah. Jesus, if, if, if we were to say that God is punishing me because of a sin I committed, then what does that say about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? Not enough, right? Insufficient. Insufficient. So we want to try to, and I can't tell you how many people I have talked to who come in and are troubled over a sin and will say something to that effect, that I think this is God getting me back for what I did. Sometimes it's years ago in my life and we want to assure them if you're ever talking with somebody in this situation assure them that no that sin has been paid along with every other sin that has occurred now those are two events right there this massacre of these Galilean Jews and this tower falling on these 18 people what are some events today in our world where some people, unfortunately, draw these same kinds of conclusions. I can think of one big one. We're coming up on it two weeks. 9-11, right? 3,000 some odd people killed in a, in a tower. It's two towers, rather, in, in New York City, the World Trade Center. Would we conclude that they were worse sinners than those who weren't? No. And yet, within a week, you could turn on the radio and listen to an evangelist saying that this was God's judgment on America for abortion and sexuality issues, and he went down a laundry list of things. We would like to ask him, how do you know that? How do you know that? And... Instead of speculating about why things are happening or not happening in people's lives, things that we don't know for sure. The only way we know something for sure is if it is in the Word of God, right? But in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of bad things happening in people's lives, there are certain things that we can be sure of because they are in God's Word. And the, the very... Uh, first and foremost of those is that God is going to be at work. How do we know that? Romans 8.28, right? God works for good in all things. 
those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, Paul is not saying there that all things are good. There are some horrible things in this world. But even in the midst of them, God is going to be at work. That we can count on. Why? Not just because I think it. It's in the word of God. That's how we can make sure of that. Let's take the pandemic over the last two plus years. Horrible. I don't know what the number's up to now, how many people lost their lives. Has, was, have we seen, actually, God at work in the midst of even that horrible tragedy? Absolutely. I won't go down the laundry list of things here that at St. Paul's, that we, just at St. Paul's that we've seen in terms of school enrollment, baptisms, confirmations. We could go on and on. And so we can be sure of that because it says so in God's word. Now, the other area which I know can be a little confusing and hard to differentiate when we get in the midst of it, but scripture also talks about the discipline of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12 in particular, there is a section there. In fact, we just had it a couple weeks ago uh, as the second reading or the epistle reading in, uh, in church, where it talks about, again, the discipline of the Lord in our lives as Christians. That is motivated not to punish us for any sin, but rather to help in achieving the overall purpose of God, which is what? Is our salvation. It is loving discipline in our lives. So he will allow certain things in our lives, again, with his overall purpose in mind, to keep us in the one true faith and keep us from going in a direction that is counter to that or counterproductive uh, to that. Okay? Now, again, I think I've said this before. When you're on the receiving end of this, and Paul even says it, or um, the writer of the Hebrews even says it, that for the time being, no discipline is pleasant, right? We don't, we don't sit back and say, oh, give me some more, Lord, give me some more. But it, again, remember the overall purpose that God has in mind in allowing this in our lives. Could God prevent 9-11, a pandemic, all the stuff that happens in our lives? Certainly he could. And again, I have no basis for saying this, but I can't help but think that God and his holy angels prevent a lot of things from happening in our lives that we will never know about. But he does allow certain things in our lives. And again, it's with his overall purpose in mind. And as Jesus says, notice how Jesus turns twice. He, he repeats this phrase. He turns away from speculating about those who the tower fell on or those who were massacred and the blood was mingled. Turns it away from them. And where does he turn the focus? Back on you. Unless you repent, you will likewise He's talking to the crowds there and saying, instead of speculating about who's a bigger sinner than someone else, everybody's in need of repentance, including you. Now, I don't know where you were on 9-11. I was at Concordia Seminary on the staff there, and we just called a real quick uh, worship service for 6.30 that evening. And it was a service of prayer. It was a service of repentance. 
Not only were we praying for our nation, praying for uh, anybody and everybody who was impacted directly by that horrible event, but we also had a heavy dose of repentance. And I would like to think that this section helped in determining that, right? Let's not sit around and speculate about why this and why that, and who's a bigger sinner, you know, uh, than somebody else. The real question is, everyone is in need of repentance. And hopefully, tragedies like that remind us of how fragile and how frail life on this earth is, and the need that we all have in humility to turn to God and say, here am I, a lowly sinner. Okay? Yes, Ruth. Right. Yes. Yeah, the Ruth's comment is, yeah, exactly. When he uses that word perish, in fact, in the Greek, it means to be totally destroyed. Apoluomai. <laughs> to be totally destroyed. So he's talking about more than just your death there. He's talking about eternity. Okay? And so you're, you're exactly right. This is not just a, just like the other one, was not just simply talking about earthly economics and settling up with a debtor somewhere. Okay? So you can see that Jesus on the way to the cross is still not giving up on these people, is he? Just think about what's in front of him, and up till the very end, he's going to be calling on people to repent and turn. Uh, in fact, we should just talk about that for a moment. What does it mean to repent of our sin? The, in the Greek language, the literal translation is to have a turning of the mind, a metanoia, a turning of the mind. So it means you're turning away from something, but we as Lutherans also say, not just because we're Lutherans, but because we believe Scripture says it, that repentance is not just turning away from something, namely my sin, but it's turning towards something else, which is, or who is? Christ, right. So true repentance is not just feeling the contrition or the sorrow for my sin and saying, you know, I'm turning away from this, but it's also faith in the forgiveness, faith in the gospel that is there for me, okay? Um, one perhaps comparison would be Judas. Did Judas have contrition and sorrow for sin? Did he turn away from that sin? Yeah, he even tried to return the money, right? But did he have any confidence in the forgiveness that would have been there even from Christ? No. Went out and hanged himself. Now compare that with Peter. Remember what Peter did? In the courtyard after Jesus is arrested three times, in fact vehemently, I had nothing to do with him. And then later on, Jesus does what? At post-resurrection, reinstates him. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, right? And so, as Lutherans, we believe that true repentance is not just sorrow or contrition for sin, but uh, faith, believing the gospel and the forgiveness that is there. Um, our confessions say just as certainly that when one of the three of us on Sunday turns around and uh, absolves you of your sin, 
that it is just as certain as if Christ himself were standing there forgiving you your sins. And that's how certain and sure that word of God is. Have no doubt that any and every sin is completely taken away. Not because of us, but because of the promise of the word of God and what Christ has done for you on the cross. Okay? All right, let me stop for a moment then. I think that was what we were going to cover on that. Any comments, questions? Raymond? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Bud, she's like John the Baptist, pointing, pointing to you. <laughs> All right, take it away, Bud. This goes right back to the settling with the, before the man. Right, right. The, the, these, uh, the chapter divisions are kind of, uh, kind of getting in the way of the fact that he's just continuing on with that same thing. Right, yeah. The comment was that really this kind of connects, and it does. It kind of is hooked to what we were just talking about, settling with your accuser before you get there. Yeah, very, very same type of thing, exactly, unless you repent. So again, notice Jesus in that role, calling for repentance, calling for that turning and being forgiven of your sins. Yeah, good comment. Yes? Right. Right, right. Would that also apply to non-Christians? Is their judgment also reserved, judgment and punishment reserved for the next life as opposed to Okay, that's a good question. So the question was, we had said earlier that we as Christians are not punished for our sin here on this earth. Does that apply to non, non-Christians, if I interpret your question right? So are, are non-Christians punished for their sins here on this earth? Is that what you were... Right, right. So in the case of the non-Christian, when those bad things happen, the purpose is the same, isn't it? To try and push them to realize again how frail and fragile life is here on this earth and to push them away from themselves to Christ. We also remember have the passages in scripture where it talks about the patience of the Lord, that God is not slow as some count slowness, but is patient, hoping that none should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. So I could not look at a non-Christian and say that something happened in their life and say, well, again, that must be because you did this three weeks ago. And again, I would never, I would never say that. I would say the same thing that Jesus says here. Unless you repent, you too shall perish. That's the sure thing that we have. Yeah. If I can make a Oh, yeah, okay, that's a good point. Uh, The the point was about the laws of, just physical laws of natural consequence. So if if uh, I'm coming up on a curve and I see that the uh, speed limit says slow down to 35 and I go 90 around around that, or try to go 90 around that curve, is is, uh, God going to automatically intervene and, and save me? Now, he could, I suppose, right, he could, but probably not. 
And uh, so as you're, that's a very good point. There are certain natural consequences of sin. Whether we are a Christian or not a Christian, there are certain, I guess you'd say, unavoidable physical consequences of sin that can occur. And God does not suspend those uh, uh, natural uh, laws, I guess you would say, whether we are a Christian or not a Christian. And we always are very careful to talk. There's that old phrase, maybe you've heard it about tempting the grace of God, you know. Well, I'm going to do this, and God, and it wasn't that exactly what Satan tried to accuse, or tried to tempt Christ with, right? Throw yourself off. After all, God's promised, you know, and again, that's, that's one of Satan's uh, attempts anyway to get Jesus to sin. So that's a very good point. There are certain natural uh, laws or natural consequences of sinful behavior that we are not shielded from, Right? Yeah, we wouldn't say that's punishment. That's more of a, I don't want to make a third category here, but that's, that's almost, again, a, just a natural consequence. And hopefully after that occurs, and if you do survive, laying there in the hospital bed, you will be moved, again, closer to Christ and say, you know, I can't imagine going 90 around a curve unless you were intoxicated or something, you know, really bad like that. And again, move to repentance and, and to Christ even, even closer. Steve? <laughs> so Steve says, I have a lot of things happen to me, and they're all my fault. <laughs> yeah, that, like we said, you cannot, you cannot ignore certain natural things, you know. Um, oh, well, anyway, I won't say that. But yeah, uh, Joan? Joan? Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, so the comment, uh, Joan's comment was, if, if you, something is causing you sin or causing you trouble, to, if you throw that out of your life, it needs to be replaced with something else we're talking about. Yeah, there is that. There is that I reminded of the verse where Jesus talks about the demons being cast out and not rep- it, it, the house is swept clean and made nice, and he comes back and brings seven more with him. I, I forget what exact verse that is. The, uh, the idea is Christ fills that void, fills that gap. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Right. So the point was, you know, you have a lot of things like earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, all those things. And again, it's the result of sin um, infiltrating and um, corrupting God's creation, isn't it? And, but yet even so, God, Jesus would remind us that this is, you know, the end is coming. And this, again, reminds us of how frail... Fragile life is here, and again, the need to interpret the times, as he was saying. Yes, David? Yeah, so uh, the, the most natural consequence of sin is aging and death. Well, we know that death is the immediate penalty, isn't it? Because remember, uh, the day you eat of that fruit, you shall 
die, and it's not only talking again about the stopping of a pulse rate and brain waves, but a spiritual death as well, right? And sure enough, it's exactly what happened, isn't it? And we see all the other, we would say, impacts of sin in God's perfect creation, you know? Uh, everything from arthritis to heart trouble to cancer, to, we could go on and on, a laundry list of things in us, but also in his creation. And all of these, again, are the result of the corrupting nature of sin. Looking forward to that new heaven and that new earth where, you know, God, as he says in Revelation 21, I believe it, it's either 7 or 21, uh, going to make all things new, right? All things new and without sin. There will be no more sin, no more evil, no more death. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine that, isn't it? Because we live with it on a daily basis all around us, okay? All right, let's get one more section done if we can. And uh, this is the parable now of the barren fig tree. And there's a little bit we can say about this, but notice again how Jesus is appealing for the fruits of repentance. He continues on this theme. So starting at verse six, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. All right, so with a parable, there's always a, mostly, a, a general truth that Jesus wants to get across, a main truth that he wants to get across. It's an earthly story using earthly details, but it's intended to teach something about life in the kingdom of God, okay? So let's take the easy part first. What would be the fruit that, G, that uh, the fig tree is supposed to produce? Not, not figs now like it would produce, but what's the fruit that, that the vine, who, well, let's, let's start with it real easy. Who's the vine dresser? You say Jesus or God, I think either way is, is fine. What's the fruit that we want here? Faith. Fruit of repentance, right? Faith, trust, turning away from sin, turning to Jesus, turning to God, however you want to, however you want to put it. Faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so he comes and he finds none. Now, one important thing to remember is, and this is Leviticus chapter 19. And this is the instruction that God's people were given for planting fruit trees, of all things. And I'm going to start at verse 23. If you have it and want to turn there quickly, I don't, we don't have too much time left. Leviticus 19.23, when you come into the land and plant any kind of a tree for fruit, for food rather, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forgive, forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, 
You may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. So when you come into the land and plant a fruit tree, how many years are you to just let it go and no fruit whatsoever? Three years. Fourth year, do you eat the fruit? It goes to God or, yeah, to the Lord as an offering. Then the fifth year, you can do what? You can, yeah, you can harvest it and eat it yourself, consume it yourself. So, what year does the vine dresser come looking for the fruit to be? Ah, uh, third year. Three years, you don't take any fruit. Fourth year, it goes to God. Fifth year, you. Okay? So, at the very least, he's looking for fruit when? Fourth year, maybe even fifth year. We don't know exactly which fruit he's looking for, the fruit to be offered to God or the fruit that you can eat yourself, right? So the point is here, it's not just that he gave the tree a year. Probably most commentators feel it's either the fourth or the fifth year. And cut it down. Now what does cutting it down symbolize? Judgment, right? Judgment thrown into the fire, cut down, thrown into the fire. And notice there, is that what happens? No, not yet. The vine dresser comes and intercedes on behalf of the fig tree and says what? Give it another year, put some manure on it, and then if it's still not bearing fruit, cut it down. But if it is, then, you know, fine. Here again, if we, if we think of the cutting it down and, and throwing it into the fire as being judgment, we see once again the long-suffering nature of God, don't we? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And you can't stretch the details of a parable too far sometimes, but... What is the fertilizer, let's just say, that's going to be put on this tree, on this fig tree? The means of grace, God's means of grace, exactly. And maybe it will bear fruit, okay? And it's the same way in, in people's lives back then as it is today, isn't it? That God is patient and doesn't want any to perish. And we continue to apply those same means of grace, hoping that the fruit of repentance will occur in people's lives. And we rejoice every time we see that happen. You know, uh, it's amazing the way it happens. We see in, in our school, our preschool, in our uh, Parents' Day Out program, we see children whom God works through to bring parents to baptism and to faith, it's an incredible thing to see. And again, it's the patient God who doesn't cut right down, but let's have another year. And it's not just a 365 days, but a period of time. And wants that person to repent and be saved, producing the fruit of repentance. Okay? All right, we are out of time. We'll stop here. And uh, pick up next time with the woman who has a disabling spirit, allowing, uh, having, forcing her to be bent over, uh, and then she is cured, and we'll see what happens. Jesus heals her, and see what happens after that. 
All right, let's close with the benediction then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. All right, thank you.